Good morning, and a really warm welcome to you all this Sunday morning uh, to Ladywell Baptist Church and to our service of worship. We come together this morning to praise God, to thank Him for who He is and what He's done for each one of us at the beginning of this week, so that we are prepared for the coming week that we might worship Him in everything that we do and say. We read at the beginning of chapter 6 in Isaiah these words, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. It's our desire that we have God fill our vision this morning as his people because he has come into our midst and he has sent his son to forgive us. And Christ, in taking our place and dying on the cross for us, has atoned for our sins, taken away our sins, so that we might see God and love Him and serve Him faithfully all the days of our lives. And so it's right that on the Lord's Day, at the beginning of this week, that we ask that He would fill our vision and truly be the Lord of our hearts for this time and on into this coming week. We are continuing in our studies in Genesis this morning, and we're going to read together from Genesis chapter 32. We're picking up in the story of Jacob getting another snapshot of his life as he leaves his uh, relatives, Laban, having um, found uh, a wife and established a family there, in fact, having uh, found two wives uh, as he has spent time in Laban's country and is now leaving to go back to the land of Canaan and also to that family that he has fled from, Esau, the brother whom he has insulted and cheated out of his birthright. And so we pick up in Genesis chapter 32. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. 
And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these uh, ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is God's word and we give thanks to him for it this morning. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we come to you and we acknowledge that you are a sovereign God. That Lord, whatever we're going through, you are there in it with us. Lord, that you do not allow anything to happen without going through your permissive will. Father, we don't always understand your actions. Lord, we don't understand COVID. We don't understand what's going on in our country. We don't understand what's going on in the world. But Lord, we thank you that you do. 
and that you are sovereign and that you are working your purposes out. Father, we thank you that we can trust in your unfailing love, that no matter what happens, you are there for us. Father, we want to thank you for answered prayer this past week, for those who were in hospital but are now home. Father, recovering, awaiting further tests, looking for further treatment. And yet, Lord, we know that in every circumstance you have been there. We thank you that you are the God who loves us, that you are the God who works your purposes out. Father, thank you that even when we don't understand, we can trust you. Father, where our faith is weak, strengthen it. And where our faith is strong, develop it. Father, we pray for our country and we ask that you would continue to work. Lord, give us, give our politicians wisdom. Lord, as they make decisions which affect our lives, help them to make the right decisions. Whether it's on COVID or Brexit or anything else. Father, we ask that your purposes would be fulfilled. Father, we ask for our families that you would draw near to us. Lord, I pray for married couples and I ask that you would grow the love between them. Father, I pray for parents and for children and all the stresses that they can cause. Father, we praise and thank you that we have family in the church. Lord, that we are one family. Help us to look out for each other. Help us to grow in our fellowship even when we are separated. Father, we can feel so lonely. Father, we can feel so isolated. And yet, Lord, you are there. Help us to understand all that that means. Help us to learn to trust you more. Help us to get to know you better. And Lord, to allow you to get to know us better. Father, I ask that you would work in the lives of loved ones who don't yet know you. Father, I pray that you would grow the, the desire for eternity. And Lord, that those who don't know you would seek you. For those of us who do know you, Father, I pray that we would get to know you better. Father, I pray for unity. I pray for love. Lord, I ask that you would continue to work in our fellowship. Be with the pastor and deacons as they seek to look the way forward. Pray for those with technological skill that they would know how to move us forward. As we come to God's word this morning and we consider another section of the life of Jacob, I don't know about you, but I find myself enormously encouraged. I have done since we've begun our studies in Genesis. In part, it's because we see uh, the way that God is so in control, is moving all the time through the lives of his people and uh, their actions, through the actions of those in the wider world who we might consider outside of, of God's sphere of influence, and yet we find this is a nonsense. God is in control of all things everywhere. 
And also because as we hear of the lives of these people, we see them in all of their glory, but also in the very depths of their failure and of their despair. And it encourages me so much because we can see so much of ourselves in them. The Bible never paints these characters as being noble and perfect, always good and right. And it's one of the reasons why I think we can distinguish uh, the Bible from other ancient works that, that deify um, the, the founders of whatever faith or nation it may be. Those characters are always painted as being strong and powerful and noble and pretty much perfect. Sometimes their flaws are, are brought into the story, but rarely, and they're small by comparison to the, um, to, to the greatness of their character and their stature. The Bible paints people as they are. And it's so good and useful for us to see that because it helps us to recognize in all of our weakness, in all of the things that frustrate us, in all of the the failings that we have when we let ourselves down and let others down, as well as in the good things that we do and and the glory that we uh, can sometimes achieve through selflessness and sacrifice and, and so on, we can see that we are as they are, and God carries on with them, continues with them, blesses them, and saves them. And so God will likewise do the same for us. Our weaknesses, our failure, our sin is not so great that God will reject us. We find, in fact, it's the very opposite. It is precisely because of our sinfulness, our great need for God, that he comes to us and draws us close to himself, saves us if we will cast ourselves upon him. And in this passage this morning, we find what it is to be a human being living with a holy, perfect, and sovereign Lord. We find Jacob limps with God through his life. And it's such a wonderful picture because so often we see ourselves there, don't we? That we limp with God every day. We would love it if we were this picture of um, physical and spiritual and mental strength and vitality that nothing ever phases us, that we always manage to have the right answer to the worst of questions and circumstances. We say the right thing, we do the right thing, that we know God and love God and serve Him and worship Him with everything we do. But so often we feel that we're barely getting by. We're just limping from one day to the next, sometimes just hoping that God will continue with us. And that's the way it is for every Christian. It's the way it has been for everyone who knows and loves the Lord and who is loved by the Lord since time began. And so we find in this passage Jacob striving and struggling to live with God, but with all of his and emotional and mental and spiritual baggage that he brings with him. And in the first section of this chapter, chapter 32 of Genesis, in verses 1 to 8, we find that Jacob's biggest problem, that our biggest problem, is that of self-sufficiency as we strive to walk with God. We all want to be self-sufficient. I'm fine. I can manage. I can do it. It's words that we've uttered since we were toddlers, since we began to speak and our parents tried to help us with small tasks. I can do it. 
And it's words that we still say to our Heavenly Father today, as Jacob does. Jacob, by this point in our story, has fled from Laban, much to Laban's anger. The issue has come about because Jacob has become so rich and powerful, he can't stay with his family any longer. He's soaking up all of the wealth of Laban's country, of Laban's family. Rachel has had a son which was so important to Jacob and that son will turn out to be the one through whom God will carry on that family line that will lead to the saviour of the world, to Jesus coming. And so it's time to head back to the promised land. As we touched on last week, Jacob has his son and heir and he now has to claim that promise of a land for his people to belong, to to be a people set apart from the other peoples of the world, to be a distinct people, a people who who are safe and free to worship and serve God. So Jacob is now wealthy and powerful, and he has this growing family around him to ensure that God's plans for the future uh, will be secure and will succeed. He has everything he needs. He's done it. He's successful. And here we have the problem. Jacob is heading home to his own land, with all of the trappings of wealth and success all around him. And he needs no one and needs nothing. This is it. He's made. He's sorted. Everything will go well from this point on. He is the picture of the self-made man. And now he comes to the very edge of the promised land and we see that he meets angels again. Now this is interesting because this parallels his experience on the way out of the promised land where he camps at night and remember has this vision of the staircase between heaven and earth with angels descending and ascending and this pictures very much the fact that God will go with him wherever he goes and as he leaves the promised land he has a vision of angels and as he enters the promised land he has yet another vision of angels. It's like they're standing at the boundary of that place. And what's interesting is that Jacob isn't really bothered by them. He's bothered by the inevitable uh, meeting with Esau. He's going home to a family. He's cheated and he's deceived. And so understandably, that worries him. But God is on his side. So why should he worry about angels? It's not a problem to him. Esau definitely isn't on his side and he's got nothing to defend himself against his brother with all of his wealth and power. And it's made worse when he hears that Esau is coming out to meet him with 400 armed men. That's as good as an army in the ancient world. And you can understand why Jacob begins to tremble at the thought of meeting a man who has clear reasons for wanting to kill him and the means to do so. He has this army of men. Jacob doesn't have an army of men for all his wealth and his power. This is it. Everything that he's worked for will be taken away and he's going to be killed. So he starts throwing his wealth at the problem. He sends out his flocks and his herds as a gift to his older brother in the hope that that will placate him. And then he divides his household and sends half of the household out so that if Esau doesn't accept the gifts and just slaughters everybody and captures all the livestock, that he will have time at the back to flee. Jacob is trying to solve this problem by himself in his own power and in his own ingenuity. It's what he's always done. He's relied on his own cunning and cleverness. In 1966, Abraham Maslow is credited with saying it's tempting if the only tool you have is a hammer to treat everything as if it's a nail. 
And that's exactly what Jacob's doing. He's got his own cleverness, his own wealth, and so these will be the solutions to his problems, won't they? But there isn't going to be a solution that will be good enough. At best, he's going to lose everything and run away again, and at worst, he's going to be killed. The problem with self-sufficiency is that you never look outside of yourself for anything. When we're content with self-sufficiency, we're actually saying that our limited best is good enough for me. In fact, no one can do any better than that. And the problem is when we discover that we are not enough, there is nobody else to turn to because we've been telling ourselves the whole time, I can do it, I can do it. That mixture of pride and shame, that doubt that anybody can solve this problem if I can't fix it, creeps in and we end up stuck. There are two men who are running from a large forest fire and as they approach the edge of the forest, they realize to be free from the flames, there's a chasm that they have to jump across. Now the first man uh, is able at full tilt to cover three meters at full stretch. The second man is an Olympic long jump champion. He can cover nine meters at full tilt. But they find as they try and jump across that the chasm is 10 meters wide. And so while the second man certainly gets far further across the expanse than the first man does, it doesn't do him any good. 10 meters is too far for either of them. It doesn't matter how much better one does than the other if they can't get to the other side. And this is exactly our problem. Need goes beyond ability. When it comes to our salvation, this is a key issue that we've got to address. If we're trying to make ourselves right with God, or even just make ourselves right with ourselves, or our family, or our society, we are going to find constantly we're not up to that task. And the problem is, if we've lived our lives constantly seeking in our own sufficiency to deal with the sins that we do and say and think, we're going to find that we will never turn to another for help because who could do a better job than I can? We've been telling ourselves that from the beginning. I'm enough. I can do this. And what goes along with it implicitly is the assumption that nobody else can or we don't need anyone else and so we'll never ask. We cannot be saved in our own strength on our own terms. We must come to Christ who is all-powerful, who is sufficient for all things, whose sacrifice was so perfect it can cover all of your sins, past, present and future. It can reconcile you to God even though you are sinful and as Scripture says, dead in your trespasses and sins. He is so much more able. And so we must come to Him. Our own self-sufficiency will see us defeated every single time. And when it comes to living as a Christian, having first cast ourselves upon Christ and acknowledged our own desperate need for someone more powerful than us, our tendency is still to live in self-sufficiency. Problems come into our lives, don't they? We experience all sorts of difficulties. And many of them are not just practical problems at work or with family, but they overlap into multiple areas of life. They're practical problems, but they cause us real spiritual struggles. They cause us emotional and mental difficulties. We can't sleep or, or we find that our, our, our spirit is just in turmoil the whole time, causing us stress and anxiety. And if we're used to just fixing things by ourselves, we're going to find 
when that day comes when we're not enough to fix the problem in front of us, we're not going to look to anyone else. We're not used to doing that. We've never had to do that. We've never felt the need to. And now all of a sudden it's necessary. Well, we find the passage provides us with a solution to that problem that we've, uh, that we've manufactured because of our own nature. It's intrinsic to who we are as human beings who have been born in sin. Sin says that you are apart from God and you don't need God. All you need is yourself. That's what Satan says. The serpent says to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? That you don't need God to tell you what's right and wrong. Just eat the fruit uh, of the tree that God has told you, of the knowledge of God and evil has told you not to eat. And, and you don't need God. You can determine the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. So it is with us. You don't need God. You're sufficient yourself. Use your own cleverness, your own ingenuity. When does that let you down? Well, let's be honest, it lets us down all the time, doesn't it? We lie to ourselves more than we lie to everyone else. We plan and we make proposals in our mind and we consistently fail to, to meet those targets. We let ourselves down all the time. And I'm saying this not simply to just be a massive downer on everything and say that you're just a rotten individual. You're not. But we must recognize there are clear, finite limits to our abilities. And the problems we face in this life are so often beyond us when it comes to fixing them and putting them right. And so in the passage, as we follow on from verse 9 and onwards, we find that as we struggle with self-sufficiency, striving with God is the solution. Now that sounds strange immediately as soon as I say it. We should never strive with God. We should always just humbly submit to God, surely. But that's not actually how we work as human beings, is it? We don't always just humbly submit to everything perfectly every time. And in the passage we find uh, Jacob eventually gets around to prayer. He's thrown everything that he's got at the problem, but he's recognized that Esau is a problem too unpredictable, too much for him uh, to deal with. And he knows he doesn't have anything that will stop his brother killing him. And he's potentially going to lose everything. It's interesting to note that Jacob has another darkness encounter here. He's had a number of those over the course of his life. In the very first one, in the womb, he struggles with his brother and we find as Esau is born, Jacob is then born immediately after, clutching onto his brother's heel. We find that um, he tricks his father out of the blessing that should have gone to Esau in the darkness of Isaac's blindness. We find that his uh, father-in-law has tricked him into marrying Leah in the darkness of night. And he wakes up realizing that he's been married to the wrong woman. He wrestles now with God by the Jabbok River in the darkness. And in this struggle, we find that his life is completely reshaped. We find ultimately that he's wrestling with God himself and he recognizes this. That this is an incarnation of God and um, many have drawn a a link here clearly to say that this is Christ before his 
incarnation through uh, birth by Mary. This is, in a sense, God making himself physically present in the world. And as they wrestle together, Jacob simply will not let go of this individual. And as dawn approaches, we find that this individual has the power to destroy Jacob just by his very touch. He merely touches Jacob's hip and it's placed out of joint. So we see that he could have beaten Jacob at any point in this fight, but doesn't. He limits himself, as it were, and wrestles with Jacob. And Jacob, in the end, regardless of the danger to himself, will not let go. He strives and strives and strives because he wants this individual to bless him. He knows at some level who this is, whether it's an angel or God himself. doesn't matter. If I cling on to you until you bless me, I know it will be a true blessing indeed. We find in the end that God renames Jacob at this point. It's no longer the sly one, the one who cheats and and steals what he needs through deceitfulness. We find that he is now going to be the one who strives with God. The one who is not content to let God go until he has been blessed. And these name changes are really significant in the Bible when they come along. We find Jacob cannot enter the promised land to be the the seed of the woman, part of that line that will ultimately end with Jesus if he is this deceiver, this cheater. We find that God is going to make him this one uh, that will strive with God for blessing until the blessing comes and sets the pattern for God's people from that point on, they will always be those who struggle and strive to see God's blessing, his presence in their life, his sustaining power, which is worth far more than anything else. It is the only way for them to flourish in life from the time of Jacob through to us today. And so Jacob strived, so we strive with God also. After his struggle, Jacob calls the place Peniel, which means uh, the face of God. Not because he saw God's face, but because he encountered God's presence in that place. And it changed him, just as it did at Bethel when he left the promised land. And in the opening passage this morning in verse 11, uh, Jacob calls out to God, deliver me. just as it did at Bethel when he left the promised land. And now, at the end of this section, Jacob says, my life has been preserved. That The name of the Lord is too wonderful for Jacob's ears. The face of the Lord is too glorious for Jacob's eyes. And yet, the Lord himself comes that Jacob may know him. Jacob has faced God and has been preserved and will see his brother face to face and therefore will be preserved. If he can stand with God, if he can struggle and strive with God and survive, then he has every confidence now that he can encounter Esau, a mere man, and God will carry him through and Jacob then limps off to meet his brother. When we strive with God for his blessing, we do so because God's blessing is worth having. We won't strive for anything if we don't truly think it's worth having, will we? It's so worth having that we're willing to strive with God and not let go until we receive it. 
This is a huge challenge as well as a great comfort to us. It should encourage us to pray to God for his blessing. And we should also recognize that when we do, the answer will in all likelihood not come immediately. Sometimes it does and we give great thanks to God for that. But more often than not, it is an ongoing thing that we struggle and strive and will not stop until you hear me and bless me. Jesus tells um, similar parables, pictures in the New Testament when he talks about how we pray with God. And he pictures um, us as someone who strives with, uh, with a, a magistrate who, to, to get justice and, and won't stop and won't stop until justice is done. Or as a child who comes again and again and again to a parent and won't stop coming until the parent blesses them. And so it is with us today. The cry of please deliver me is answered by God appearing in human form to Jacob and it emphasizes just how powerless Jacob is but how powerful God is to address his problem. And Jacob's exclamation that God has delivered him is also an exclamation that God has humbled him, has shown him how weak he is and how needful he is of God. That God is enough. What we need aren't straightforward solutions to every problem we have, that we bring them before the Lord and in an instant God fixes them. What we need is to strive with God because in the striving is not just an answer to prayer. It is a greater knowledge and love for the one that we strive with. A greater awareness and appreciation of who they are, of how sufficient they are, of how loving and kind and merciful and perfect they are, and how frail and weak we are, how much we need them, and the joy of knowing that they meet us in that need. That God supplies our every need. That He is willing to do that. That He loves to do that. And so we find that not only are our problems addressed, but our relationship with God is addressed. What changed after Jacob's wrestling with God? Esau was still there. 400 armed men were still just over the horizon. Their past enmity was still a fact. Nothing had changed except for Jacob. Jacob now knew that he walked with the Lord. He limps now. The Lord has done something that he'll never recover from. His hip is always going to be weak and slightly damaged. And yet, as he limps, he is nonetheless stronger than when he was fully able-bodied just a few moments before. One of these wonderful ironies in Scripture, that through Jacob's weakness, the strength of God is made more fully known. And this is what Paul says, doesn't he? He prays to the Lord to have this problem he has removed from him and the Lord won't do it. He prays three times persistently and the Lord won't solve his problem, fix his problem. And in the end, the Lord says to him that my grace is sufficient for you. I'm leaving you with this problem to remind you that only my grace is sufficient for you and in your weakness is my strength made more fully known. And so it is for us. We find moving into chapter 33 of Genesis that the result of our awareness of our lack when it comes to self-sufficiency, that as it comes to um, striving with God to see a solution to our problems, we see that blessing is the final result. 
When Jacob and Esau finally meet, we find that Esau comes to his brother and falls on his neck and kisses him and they both weep. It's a joyful reuniting of two brothers at odds with one another. God has changed everything. And what change do we see in Jacob? He goes and like Abraham did back in chapter 12, he builds an altar at Shechem and he calls it God, the God of Israel. He worships God. He goes and he builds an altar at Bethel like Abraham did in chapter 12. And he is now ready and willing to receive the promised land as God's gracious gift to him instead of taking it for himself through trickery and deceit. He's truly beginning to rely upon the Lord in his need. And when we think about our own salvation and the life that we live after it, do we think of the blessing of God as our number one focus or are we so results driven that I just need to fix this problem in front of me right now? We so often fail to see that in simply getting the problem out of the way, the Lord doesn't lead us through the difficulty which results in us being so much stronger, so much more fully equipped, so much more mature as a Christian man or woman as a result of the striving with God that we will go through through that process. And I know that's not what so many of you want to hear. We want to just go through life in relative ease. We, we don't want to struggle and strive and be hurt and experience pain. And yet God, in the majesty of his sovereign will, knows that it will be better for us in the end that we go through this experience. And I don't pretend to understand that or offer that as a trite answer just to make all your suffering seem so much easier and better. I know it won't. But it does put them into perspective. And it does help us understand how we don't just process our struggling, our suffering, but helps us understand how we're to engage in our struggles, in our suffering, in light of the fact we serve a sovereign God. There are many people who would take the view that because we suffer and God is, uh, is loving and merciful and holy and righteous, he could not possibly have wanted us to go through these experiences. So he doesn't know that these experiences will happen. They just happen and God tries to make the best of a bad situation. And this is truly a terrible thing for us to believe. It's hard sometimes for us to say, well, you know, God has sent this particular suffering into my life because we ask the question, why would God do this to me? How could a loving God do this to me? And yet we lack perspective. For as we look at Jacob, Jacob could rightly ask the question, why is God allowing this to happen? I'm doing what he wants. I've acquired the birthright of my father. I've acquired all this wealth and these children. I'm ready to inherit the promises he has given to me. How can he bring me to the edge of the promised land and let me die at the hands of my brother? And we find in the end that going through that experience of suffering and even to the point of disjointing his hip, literally, God makes Jacob so much stronger and better able to love and worship and glorify the Lord in what he does. And that's what we want as God's people, isn't it? We want to worship God with all we are for all that he's done for us in Christ who came and died our death, suffered on our behalf for our sins. And so we recognize as hard as it will be 
For the Christian, there is no easy out to suffering. We go through it. And as we do so, we strive with God the whole way for understanding, for clarity. Help me to to get me through and out this staying faithful to you. Help me to be stronger and better able to stand in the face of adversity. Help me face the Esau that waits for me over the horizon so that I will inherit the promises you have promised me. For you are faithful. This is what a Christian is. It's someone who is wholly dependent on God for their salvation and life. Someone who spends themselves seeking earnestly God's blessing for themselves, their family, their church, and their nation. This doesn't mean passivity. It doesn't simply mean that we just wait for God to do everything for us, but we keep our priorities right. When we seek after God, Jesus tells us we will find Him. When we spend more time with the Lord, we are changed. We are given fresh passion for the things of God, for praising His name and proclaiming the gospel that sinners like us might be saved and brought into God's kingdom. We find that we are molded into more mature men and women, sons and daughters of God who are mature and grown up in the faith, lacking nothing. And it's hard, but it's worth it. For the life that we lead now carries on into eternity. What you desire to be in eternity, perfect, begins here and now as Christ begins to work in your life. Before self-sufficient people can enter God's kingdom, God must transform them into people who will depend upon Him. And this might well mean having us limp for the rest of our lives because we have gone through a difficult experience and we are bruised and we are battered and we wondered if we would ever see the other side of it and we couldn't understand why God would ever lead us into this situation in the first place when we strive to be faithful and love him and serve him. But in the end, the only thing we can do is cling to him and cry out for his blessing again and again and again. For we have nothing left in and of ourselves to see us through to the other side. It is better for us to limp into God's kingdom with his blessing than for us to die on the road on the way in our own self-sufficiency. So let's limp together, supporting and sustaining one another, but calling one another again and again to cast ourselves upon the Lord and not let him go until he blesses us. For in so doing, we are made more mature. Our church will grow. Our nation will be blessed. And God's kingdom will be more firmly established in this place. So let's pray for one another and build each other up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your great goodness to us. Lord, we recognize that in Christ we have a perfect, sufficient Savior. And yet, Lord, we also recognize our lives are so difficult from that point that we were saved until the day that we will go to be with you in glory. Lord, you never promise us a bed of ease for us to recline on as we go through this life. You you promise us the very opposite. It will be really hard. 
But you promise that you will go with us through that hardness. You will lead us on and you are shaping us and molding us into someone that you would have us be more mature. Someone who worships you more faithfully, follows you with greater passion and zeal, sacrifices for you more willingly. And Lord, that's what we want. So bless us to that end. Lord, help us not to let go of you, to strive with you and strive with you even in the midst of suffering, even if it means that we will limp with you all the rest of our days. For Lord, we would limp with you into glory rather than be left behind, healthy and whole. Lord God, we ask all this in our Saviour's wonderful and perfect name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now as you prepare to go out into the coming week to serve your God and King, I want you to go knowing the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Amen.